thank you for that great introduction. Well, it's great to see you back. We're going to take what we did this morning and kind of go a step further and ask, how do we practically do this with non-believers in our lives? I graduated from Biola University in 1998. And that year, I took a class with one of the most influential philosophers in the world today. His name is J.P. Moreland. It was an apologetics class, and I got an A. So I was pretty pumped at the end of this class thinking, I am looking for people to have conversations with them because I now know the case for Christianity. Well, fast forward a couple months after graduation, I was in Breckenridge, Colorado, beautiful ski town, a couple hours outside of Denver, probably nine or 10,000 feet up, went in to get my hair cut. And I sat down, the lady cutting my hair, if I remember, was maybe 25 or 30, I guess I was about 22, sat down and I set a Christian book I was reading on the, on the kind of the counter there. And she goes, oh, are you a Christian? I said, yes. She said, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, no, inside I'm thinking, great, bring it on. I just got an A in Dr. Moreland's class. Well, she's cutting my hair. She instantly says something to the effect of, why would God, if he's so good and powerful, allow so much evil and suffering in the world? Instantly, I thought, we just talked about that in class. So I launched and I said, well, think about it. God gives us free will. He didn't make us robots. If he's going to give us free will to love people, he's got to give us free will to not love people. I said, besides, what is evil? Evil is a corruption of good. You can't have evil without good and you can't have good without God. Have you ever thought about how your question actually proves that God exists? I'm thinking this conversation is going awesome. But like many males, I was flat out clueless to the female's emotions. We're having this conversation. All of a sudden, she steps back, starts to cry, and she's shaking. And she's holding scissors, which honestly made me a little bit nervous to the back of my head. And she says, this is a bunch of expletive. I'll let your imaginations fill in the blank. She goes, you have an answer for everything. It can't be that easy. I felt bad. Changed the subject. Gave her a big tip. A big tip for a 22-year-old. Walked out, my friend Jace was there. I was like, man, what is up with Miss Sensitive? We're having like this great conversation. And she starts breaking down and crying. I will never forget what he said to me. He goes, Sean, do you have any idea how arrogant you were towards her? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was speechless. I realized I was far more interested in sounding smart and winning an argument than actually lovingly ministering to this person before me who asked me a great question. So one of the ways I respond now when people ask the question, why does God allow so much evil and hurt? You know what I'll say? I'll say something to the effect of, of all the questions you can ask about God, why that one? And nine out of 10 times, you know what you'll hear? Because my uncle is dying of cancer. My parents lost their home. My husband lost his job. Nine out of 10 times when people ask about evil and suffering, it's something personal they've gone through. Now, occasionally somebody will say, hey, I just watched Batman versus Superman. And in that movie, actually, the bad guy, Lex Luthor, states the problem of evil. That's what that movie is about. The person will say, I was in a chat room or I was in philosophy class. Then you know it's an intellectual question. What I found is more often than not, it's an emotional question. And if I jump in with an answer and I don't listen and try to understand, I miss an opportunity to minister to somebody. You see, one thing I've learned the hard way is that if you mess up the relational, content doesn't matter. <laughs> if we mess up the relational, it undermines the content itself in the minds of people. So there's, when it comes to communication, simply put, there's really two things. I was a communication major in college, and they would tell us there's the medium and there's the message. The medium is the means by which you communicate something, and the message, of course, is the content or the message you want to communicate. Well, in one sense, from a Christian perspective, the medium is relationships. 
Yes, God has sent a book. Yes, God speaks through nature. Yes, God has sent prophets. But when God ultimately wanted to reveal himself, what did he do? He sent his own son in human flesh so we could know God through him. There's the relational side. But then second, there's the content. (laughs) And we have to get both of them right. There's some people today who say, you know what, maybe the loving thing to do is to change or adapt the content of Scripture to certain cultural changes. That's a mistake because it's the truth that sets free. Then there's other people on the flip side who say, you know what, I'm going to speak truth. I'm God's agent of truth. If someone gets offended by it, that's on them, not me. And I think that lacks the love and grace that we're supposed to communicate with people. One of my favorite things to do at churches, conferences, schools is something I call my atheist encounter. So I used to wear an atheist jacket when I would do this, but now I have these atheist glasses that I put on. And and before the service this morning, a handful of you have seen me do this in different settings. And I basically start off, people know I'm a Christian, and I'll put on these glasses and I role play an atheist and then I take questions from the audience, primarily Christian audiences. And usually at first people are pretty confident, but almost every time, 15, 20 minutes into this, when I'm answering the questions with confidence, what happens is the Christian audience tends to get a little defensive, get a little angry, a little testy. I've had people stand up and call me names. I've had people storm out. I've had people cut me off and yell at me and they know I'm role playing. I was speaking at an event in uh, Minnesota, a beautiful town called Duluth. And there was about 1,500 students in a stadium and I was doing my atheist role play. And I I had set up microphones around the stadium. I turned around to start and this group of students They shout it, they go, boo, boo, go home, Mr. Atheist. And I hear a youth pastor say, you're going to hell. Like he shouts that out. So I didn't expect that. So I went off script and I was like, hey, wait a minute here. Sure, I'm an atheist, even though they knew I was a Christian, I was role playing. I said, I was invited to share my perspective and you're booing at me. Do you think that's a Christian thing to do? I mean, Jesus doesn't seem to me he would have done that. He was accused of being a friend of sinners. He said, love your enemies. I said, what about Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, this whole love chapter? It says, if you speak in tongues and words of prophecy and have not love, you're like a clanging symbol. You have nothing. I mean, I poured into these students and the stadium was silent, which proves there's a God because junior hires were present. The next summer, I was speaking in Salt Lake City, and I turned around to start, and the moment I started my atheist role play, these students, right where you all are sitting, they go, woo-hoo-hoo, we love you, Mr. Atheist. And I afterwards asked them, I'm like, why did you respond that way? Usually there's tension. They said, well, we were part of the group that booed you in Minnesota. And instantly I thought, they got the point. They got the point. How we treat people relationally matters. It matters. Do we love people? I was speaking at a conference in, uh, in Texas. This is probably a dozen years ago, and I taught all week. So I probably taught 10 or 12 times at a high, junior high, high school conference. And when I started, uh, my very first thing was my atheist encounter. And as far as I remember, these students were about as testy and defensive as any group I can remember doing this. And finally, this girl kind of back left middle stands up. She goes, mister, I just want to read you something. I said, okay, what do you want to read me? She said, it's from the Bible, the Holy Word of God. She holds it up. I said, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the Bible. She goes, I don't care. Listen up. She's going to be a great parent someday. She reads to me Psalms 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I said, so you're publicly calling me a fool. She goes, the Bible says it. That settles it. I believe it. Like her friends stand up there. Woo-hoo-hoo, got you, you know, fool, atheist. And they sit down. What's interesting when it was done, whenever I do that, students will like surround me for a long time because they feel like their beliefs have been challenged and now they're kind of hungry for answers. And this girl waited till everybody was gone that night, probably an hour or so. And she was going to be a junior in high school, so probably 16, 17. And she kind of leans in, looks around. She goes, she goes, I want to thank you for doing your best to defend atheism. I was like, sure, why are you thanking me? She goes, well, I'm an atheist. I said, really, you're here at a Christian camp? How'd you get here? She said, well, I am a leader in my youth group. I said, I feel like I'm missing something here. 
She goes, look, I've grown up in the church. And recently I had a lot of questions. My pastor, my parents, they're like, just read the Bible, just believe, don't ask questions. She said, and I started to realize, I don't even believe anymore. I said, well, have you told anyone else? She said, no, you're the first person. I said, why haven't you told anyone else? I'll never forget what she said. She said, because I'm afraid they'll treat me like they just treated you. I don't think we realize as Christians the jokes we laugh at, the stories we tell, the labels we give, what it communicates to the outside world about our love or lack thereof towards them. About a decade ago, I wrote a book. Um, it was called Is God a Human Invention? You might remember in culture when the new atheists were this huge discussion five, 10, 12 years ago, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, etc. And so a friend of I, who lives actually just south here in Peachtree City, we wrote a book responding to the new atheists. And I was having Christians read it, and I thought, you know, it'd be much more interesting if I could get a bunch of skeptics to engage these ideas. So I called up the head of the free thinking kind of society in Orange County where I live. I said, hey, my name's Sean McDowell. The guy actually had seen me debate on a college campus previously, so he knew who I was. I said, I'd be happy to come to your group, sit in the hot seat, and you and your atheist friends can ask me anything you want to ask a Christian. I don't know about you, but that actually sounds like fun to me. And it's not because I think I have all the answers. I really don't have a problem saying, I don't know, good question. I'll figure it out and come back to you. So I went up there with my wife and my pastor in this home for about two hours. And I just kind of pulled up a chair, sat on this hot seat, and they fired questions at me for a couple hours about the origin of the soul, about the end times, like some questions I expected, some I totally didn't expect. This is the head of it, whose name was Bruce. And at the end, I said this. I said, can I ask you guys some questions? And I could have said, how do you explain right and wrong without God? I don't think there's a good atheist answer to that. I could have said, how do you get something from nothing if there's no God outside of space and time? I could have asked them, how do you get life from non-life if chemicals are all that exist? I think these are questions that naturalism can't answer. But instead, I tried a different approach. I just asked them a few questions such as, what bad impressions do Christians leave? And this young man who was a philosophy student who became a friend of mine afterwards, he instantly raised his hand and he goes, hypocrisy. I said, what do you mean? He goes, look, I have a friend who's a Christian, and I remember being with him while he would consistently rail against homosexuality while he was drunk. <laughs> like, honestly, some of the hypocrisy in the Christian world... Like we look at biblical teaching on certain things like divorce and seem to have a different standard when it comes to other issues. My point is, do we pick and choose certain sins but let other things like gossip go? That at least was his criticism, which I think is fair. And then a, a lady who was there, she said, Christians don't take their religion seriously, which I thought was interesting. I said, if you, why don't you really read and apply and live out the Bible if you think it's actually true? I was like, another fair observation. Another question I asked, I said, how can Christians improve their interactions with skeptics? A lady sitting right in front, if I remember, she was maybe about 70 years old. She shot her hand up. She goes, listen. I said, what do you mean? She said, a lot of my Christian friends want to tell me why I'm wrong and sometimes tell me why I'm going to hell but they don't want to listen to what I believe. Why should I listen to them when they don't listen to me? That's a fair point, isn't it? This guy sitting in the back instantly, he goes, he goes, stop the atheist jokes. I thought, man, dang it, I've got some good ones. Actually, the words he used, this is a guy who is, used to be Christian, has a website now trying to debunk Christianity. He said, stop slandering atheists. That's actually the word he used. So I was like, what do you mean slandering atheists? He goes, look, I don't believe in God. He goes, but now and then I go sit in the back of church and just observe. I've actually had a decent number of my friends who are atheists tell me that they'll go observe church. Now, why would they do this? Think about it. If you're not a Christian, church is actually an interesting sociological phenomenon, 
right? Like, wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, we do weird things in church. I was in church a couple weeks ago and there was a song and some people close their eyes, some people raise their hands and worship and they're like, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Now stop and think about that. If you don't understand Christian theology and you walk in and see that, you're like, either this is a cult or a medical convention. I mean, why do we pray, bow our heads, close our eyes, and squeeze hands when we're done? Why? We just do it. We do a lot of things that are weird to outsiders, and that's okay. I have a bunch of non-Christians who have told me they just go observe in church, and he said this. He goes, every time I go, I hear some cheap shot against atheists or some non-Christian group from the stage. And I remember, so my wife was next to me and I kind of squeezed her knee, which meant like, remember this, we'll talk about it later. We're driving home. I'm like, this guy's got a complex. If you have that attitude, you show up in church, you're going to find something to complain about. Within like a week or two, I'm at church and the pastor tells a joke at the expense of atheists. This time my wife grabs my knee and squeezes it. She goes, see, that guy was right. And I was like, you're right. It's like God started to open up my eyes to realize how thoughtless and insensitive and unloving we often are towards non-Christians who are the very group that we're called to reach. We're called to reach. One of my favorite parts of that evening is Bruce turned to me at one point, and we staged that photo for fun, but he turned to me, and I never forget, he looks at me and he goes, huh, no way. And I was like, no way what? He goes, honestly, he goes, I didn't expect this. And I was like, you didn't expect what? He goes, you actually have a sense of humor. First off, I don't think I'm that funny. Like I try, my daughter doesn't think I'm funny at all because she's 13, right? But occasionally when I get her to laugh, I remind her how funny her dad actually is. But what surprised me is he was so surprised that I seemingly had a sense of humor. Why? Because in his worldview, Christians are like Angela in the office. And frankly, that character works because there's some truth to that, isn't there? So what are some practical ways we can engage people in spiritual conversations? Now, this is kind of titled towards skeptics, but really a skeptic is anyone who just doesn't believe. Could be a Muslim, could be somebody who just doesn't believe in God, somebody new age. This is a guide practically from the book of Proverbs, how to engage skeptics. And here's four questions that I might encourage you to consider. The first one, pretty straightforward, is what does the person believe? I've begun to realize as I've done evangelism and apologetics over the years that I often don't take the time to understand what someone really believes. I don't want to answer questions anymore that people really aren't asking. Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? My dad said to me one time, he goes, son... It's more important to understand than to be understood. Is that powerful? It's more important to understand than to be understood. In a conversation, step number one is what does this person believe about climate change? What do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about marriage? What do they believe about fill in the blank? Let's start by listening and trying to understand. There was an article a few years ago in The Atlantic by Larry Taunton, who's a Christian, and it was called Listening to Young Atheists. And he went around and interviewed a whole bunch of skeptics and atheists on college campuses, trying to hear their stories and then draw together some insights in terms of what they believe and why they believe it. And he made a few observations. He said, number one, that many, if not most, had gone to church. Now, millennials as a whole, the studies show that most millennials have some kind of religious background. We're now seeing with Gen Z, there's not some of the same church experience and baggage as previous generations. That's one thing that separates this new generation, but there's still a high percentage of young people that have an experience with church. They said, second, the mission and message of the church was vague. It wasn't really clear what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. 
They said third, they felt their churches offered superficial answers to life's difficult questions. Sometimes as Christians, let's be honest, here's our solution. Pray, read the Bible, join a small group. Now we should pray, we should read the Bible, and small groups are awesome. But friends, there is depth and difficult questions in life circumstances that aren't simply fixed by just following those three steps. I think with this question, with this generation, when they can Google things at their fingertips, simplistic superficial answers are sometimes worse than just saying, honestly, I don't know the answer to that. That's a great question. Good for you. Let's talk about this. Let's find an answer. They expressed their respect for ministers who took the Bible seriously. Isn't it interesting that that's come up a few times? Ages 14 through 17 were decisive. Now, I think studies show that kids are developing their theology in elementary school years. But it's not until they get to the high school years that they'll start to own what they believe and choose a particular direction. So for these young people, they started to realize their questions and their doubts really hit around that junior high to high school age. The other thing is said, the decision to embrace unbelief was often an emotional one. In this study, one girl said, the day my father died, I became an atheist. The day my father died. And they said the internet factored heavily in their conversion to atheism. And I am seeing this all over the place where I go with young people. Videos on TikTok, videos on Instagram, YouTube channels, social media. This generation has more challenges intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally just one click away than previous generations often did in a lifetime. And it's coming at them nonstop. And last, oh, sorry. Uh, the last one was related to the internet and the power of YouTube videos shaping them. So the first question is, what does someone believe? Let's get clarity on what they actually really believe, and let's understand it first. The second question is, why do you believe it? It sounds simple, but once I know what someone believes, and I've asked questions to get some clarity, now I want to know why they believe that. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Isn't that powerful? I'm not even sure a lot of people understand the depths of why they believe what they believe. But through wisdom and through listening, we can often try to draw out what that heart issue often is. So for me, I call it the question behind the question. What's really driving this person in the question that they have? So for example, I was speaking at a, at a conference for students a few years ago, and I did my atheist role play. When I was done, this 18-year-old high school student came up to me and goes, that was really interesting. Can we skip out of the next session and go talk outside? I have questions for you. I was like, sure. So he sat on the porch of this conference, and he started, this 18-year-old kid told me that he grew up in the church, but has left his faith. And I said, why? He goes, well, contradictions in the Bible. Well, Hinduism is older than Christianity anyways. He's framing all these questions, and I'm just sitting there thinking, I don't know if I buy it. Like, I bet there's something else driving this. So finally I said to him, I said, look, I could be off base. If I, if I am, I apologize. I'm going to bet and guess that something else is going on here, that this issue isn't really what drove you from your faith. I said, what is the heart of the reason you've left the Christian faith your parents raised you in? You know what he says? He goes, he goes, you're right. He goes, here's the deal. I've grown up in a Christian home, just graduated from high school. And in fall, I've signed up to go to a fraternity. He pauses and says, I just want to have fun for at least a season in my life. I said, thank you for your honesty. At least now we're talking about the real issue, <laughs> the heart of the issue. 
had a young man, I gave a talk on same-sex marriage and he came up to, to me afterwards and he said something effective. He said, so is homosexuality the worst sin in God's eyes? Now to me, because I've done this enough, I thought, what would motivate a young person to ask this question? I said, you know what? That's a really thoughtful question. Let's go maybe talk outside. I don't want to just give you a quick, facile answer. So I talked through what scripture says in certain passages. And I said, you know, when you ask me if it's the worst sin, I have to wonder if this is just something you've thought about and wrestled with. All of a sudden, this kid breaks down in tears and he goes, I have struggled with same-sex attraction. He goes, I've never told anybody. I've heard my parents say things. I know they love me, but homophobic things that just fears me that if I come out to them, they would reject me. Do you see the heart wasn't this theological question. At the heart of it is like, do I belong? Will I be loved? Does grace apply to me? So I want to know what somebody believes, but through God's grace and wisdom, I want to know what's the heart of the issue that's really driving. What I found is sometimes it's intellectual. More often than not, something else is going on. So here's some questions that I found are helpful. Questions that I, I've asked skeptics and non-believers. Something as simple as, what people have most influenced you? You could ask that more broadly. You could say, what people have most influenced your spiritual life or how you think about God? And just listen. What people have most shaped your life? So for me, you can't really fully understand me apart from my relationship with my dad, his experience growing up, the way he shaped me, my basketball coach, the life lessons that I've learned from playing for an amazing coach who's an even better person, my resident director in college, some professors that I've had, my wife. Like if you want to understand me, and I know this is true for you, if we went around the room, all of you can think of somebody who influenced you. And probably you'd love it if somebody asked you about that. But if you're in conversation with somebody, say, tell me about the people that most influenced you and who most influenced you when it comes to spiritual things. And just listen. Another question is, what experiences have most shaped you? What experiences have most shaped you? Now, one of the topics that's launched into conversation publicly is something called progressive Christianity. And I won't go into too much depth about this, but I've had conversations and read a lot of books about progressive Christianity. And a lot of what drives it is people burned in the church that are reacting against bad experiences. And some of those experiences are very genuine and hurtful, and I understand it. But if you understand somebody's spiritual journey, what experiences did they have, good or bad, that shaped who they are, that led them to the person that they are? What experiences in church? What experiences at camp? What experiences with Christians? That is a powerful key that can unlock not only relationship with somebody, but insights into their spiritual journey. Tell me about the experiences related to God or church or anything spiritual that most shaped you. And just listen. Just listen. A third one is, what are your past hurts? What are your past hurts? Now, obviously, if you just meet somebody, it's like if you jump to this question, you might not quite have permission to get there. Now, by the way, these kinds of questions aren't meant to like sit down. You have to ask them once. Sometimes this can be an ongoing conversation with somebody. I'm telling you, it's amazing when you talk to people and you probe a little deeper the hurt that is so often there. I was... I don't know, maybe four or five weeks ago, I was streaming, I was interviewing, I think it was this archaeologist I was interviewing on my YouTube channel, and this person was just making these caustic, like, hateful comments. And of course, it was the one time I forgot to remind my moderator to be there to just kind of block. Like, if somebody's going to add this, it just doesn't help the conversation. So I'm trying to lead this conversation. I'm seeing the comments on the side like, oh, this is derailing it. And what was sad is this person was saying really harsh things. Well, Sean's just in this for the money and like all this different stuff. And I was actually promoting someone else's book. I wasn't even talking about mine. And these Christians are not responding graciously, which made it worse to me. 
And finally, somebody made a comment. Somebody said, why don't you just be quiet? This person said, I served in the military and I lost my sight in the military. I've served this country. I have a right to speak. And right there I thought, that's it. That's it. So I stopped and I said, I said, hey, I'm seeing this chat going on. I love that people are engaging these ideas. I forget the person's name. I said, look, you just shared that you were in the military and you lost your sight. I said, I am so sorry. I can't imagine the pain of what that went through and how that might shape the way you think about God. All I can say is thank you for your service and my heart breaks that you would go through this. Silence. That's the heart of the issue. That's the heart of the issue. This past week, I had a chance to interview Lee Strobel, and I asked him, I said, how has your approach to apologetics changed? He said, when somebody asked me about evil, I used to have lined up five reasons why Christianity best answers evil. I had an acronym in my mind, and I started launching them off. He said, what he'll do now is ask questions and listen. And he told me a story, somebody who wrote in really harsh criticism, and Lee goes, I was going to write back and put this person in their place because they were wrong. He said, but instead I did this. Instead, I reached out and I said, would you be willing to have a conversation? And this was a former professor who lost his job. I can't remember what physical health issue he had and was living in a trailer park. He said, not responding in anger, but understanding the hurt diffused the whole thing. And we had a genuine conversation. What are your past hurts? You know, it's interesting, the story of Steve Jobs, obviously brilliant, one of the great entrepreneurs of the past century. Steve Jobs was known as being pretty harsh and critical. Well, in one of, the, one of the biographers that studies Steve Jobs' life was commenting on what he thought motivated Steve Jobs to be so harsh at times and drove him to be successful. You know what he said? He goes, Steve Jobs was given away and adopted by his parents. I think he was trying to prove to the world that his parents shouldn't have given him up and that he had worth. No, I don't know if I can prove that's true or not, but does that give you a different perspective when you think about somebody like Steve Jobs? Doesn't that give us compassion? That's, as Christians, how we're called to approach people. There are deep, deep hurts. And if you get someone to talk about their hurts and share, that opens up conversation. The last thing is describe the God you don't believe in. Now, you don't have to word it that way. You might say, can you tell me how you understand the Christian story? Or who do you understand the Christian God to be? And I'll tell you something that blows me away. Almost every time I do this with somebody who's a former Christian, I'm able to respond and say, you know what? I don't believe in that God either. Can I share with you what I think Scripture actually says about who God is and how you have salvation on the Christian story? Time after time after time, which is why not only relationship, but content matters. I was speaking at church with, with my dad about a year, year and a half ago, and before, the pastor sent me a message, and he said, at this event, here's a few people that are coming that are friends of mine that aren't Christians, just so you know. And one of them was a youth pastor who had just stepped down from being a youth pastor because he doesn't believe in God anymore. He was coming to the conference because of his relationship with the pastor. I said, would you ask him if he'd be willing to have lunch with me? I just want to meet him, hear a story, and maybe if I can, try to offer some answers for his journey. He goes, sure. So I met this guy for lunch. 45 minutes, he's asking me these questions, and I'm giving the best answers I can, and it's like water on the back of the duck. In the back of my mind, I'm like, man, I'm supposed to be an apologist? Like, these, this guy doesn't feel like I'm helping him at all? Like, I wish Lee Strobel was here. I wish my, like, seriously, I'm like, this is supposed to be my job. And I didn't feel like it was helping at all. Gets to the very end, and I'll never forget, he goes, do you have any last advice for me? I said, you know what? Here's my question for you. Every person I've met who left the Christian faith, I want to know this. 
tell me the experience you had when you were a Christian, when you knew that you were a sinner and you cried out to God for his grace. Silence. He said, I didn't become a Christian because I was a sinner in need of grace. I became a Christian because I was hurting and told that if I believed in Jesus, he would make me feel better. That's a false gospel. And we put him in leadership. Can you imagine that? I'm telling you time and time again, a lot of people in the church and outside the church don't even truly understand the message of Jesus. I've said to Muslims, I've said to atheists, to former Christians, I've said something effective, can you tell me about what you think the Christian message is? And almost every single time I'm able to say, you know what, I actually don't believe that either. Can I share with you what I think the message and heart of Jesus is? I have never had someone say no. So step number one, I want to know what somebody believes. And second, I want to know why they believe it. And what people say isn't always the question behind the question or the heart of the issue of why people really believe what they believe. The last one is where do we agree? Common ground. One of the things that I try to do in conversation is find common ground with people. Why? It humanizes people and it builds bridges instead of walls. So when I was at this skeptics group, the head of it, Bruce, again, at one point, he goes, I can't believe how much we have in common. He goes, this is unbelievable. Now, I don't think it's that unbelievable. I was going out of my way to say, oh, we share that here. And oh, that's something we actually both care about. There's something powerful about finding common ground with somebody. It humanizes the person and it builds relationship and care with that person. Proverbs 24.3 says, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. There's something powerful before we get to difference, before we get to critique, finding common ground with people. In my conversations, if I'm talking with somebody on, say, like we talked about this morning, LGBTQ issues, I want to find common ground. You know what? We actually both really care about people who have been rejected by those who love them. We may respond differently, but I want to recognize your heart for this. And that's a heart that I have as well. We may differ how to do with it, but it sounds like we both care about this. Even people on views in the environment, I've said, look, we have different views about maybe how the effects that humans are having on the environment, how to fix it, but we actually both agree that we should take care of the environment and it matters. Like what can we, what common ground can we find together? It's powerful. The last question, where do we disagree and why? Where do we disagree and why? One of my favorite talk show hosts, Dennis Prager, probably many of you are familiar with him, Jewish talk show host. On his show, he goes, I'm not always trying to change somebody's mind. I'm trying to clarify exactly where we disagree and why. There's something powerful about that. So I can think of two exact conversations I've had with skeptics where we disagree about the source and origin of the universe, what's called the cosmological argument. The beginning of the universe points towards the beginner. If you trace this argument back farther enough, and if the argument is true, you basically have one of two options. Either the universe began to exist from nothing, or there's something outside of the universe, this timeless, spaceless, intelligent, powerful, that brought it into existence. Now, to me, I think the answer is pretty obvious which is more powerful. But I've had multiple conversations with skeptics in which I say, okay, here's the final point where you and I differ. I think if the universe is going to begin, it needs a cause outside of the universe to bring it into existence. You think something can come from nothing. I said, just reflect on those, something from nothing or something from a cause outside of space and time, which is more reasonable? And both of them looked me right in the eyes and said, something from nothing is far more reasonable than a personal God. Like at that point, I'm not exactly sure where to take the argument. 
So I say, okay, at least in this whole conversation, we've surfaced where we differ. Your worldview commits you to something coming into existence from no thing. That's the price of your worldview. My worldview is that there's a God outside of space and time in the beginning of universe points towards a beginner. At least we've surfaced the differences, and now we understand what the worldviews cost. I'm telling you, you can have powerful conversations with people. Help me understand what you believe, why you believe it, what common ground we share, and then where we differ and why. Now, I often look for ways to share the gospel with people, but I'm also trying to gauge if people are ready or not. In some circles in which I grew up in, it was like if you didn't get right to the gospel, that was a failed conversation. I no longer see it that way. I think we need to be ready to share the gospel and bold when we share it. But I also think, as my friend Greg Kokel says, if you can have a conversation with somebody and give them something to think about and treat them graciously, that's like putting a stone in somebody's shoe. What happens when you get a stone in your shoe? It bugs you, right? And it stays with you. I look at conversations thinking, can I leave, if I'm a Christian, they know it. Can I be thoughtful? Can I be gracious and winsome in a certain way that might start to turn their categories so there would be an openness to the gospel? That's a win. I think sometimes we think you had to go from A to Z so people aren't willing just to go from A to C or D to E. Having spiritual conversations with people listening to them, loving them, showing grace to them, talking about spiritual things. There's value in doing that. And of course, on top of doing that, having a readiness to share the gospel when we can. My favorite proverb says this. It says, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Isn't that beautiful? Look, there is a time for prophets to speak boldly. And there's some crazy stuff in our culture right now that we need people to stand up and say, that is wrong and this should not be allowed. But I'll tell you, in our divided era, isn't there something powerful about kindness and generosity and love and graciousness with people? And there's something powerful in our divided moment about doing this. What's interesting is one of the two fellows that I had this talk about the cosmological argument all the way back to the beginning, and he looked at me in the face and he goes, something from nothing is more reasonable. What's interesting about this is we lived in Southern California and this family moved, they were near us and we became friends for years. They were not believers. His wife joined a Bible study with my wife, and she became a Christian. Over like a couple years of this Bible study and patience and meeting Christians, she became a Christian. He didn't. We had conversations about intelligent design, about hell, about heaven, all this kind of stuff. And over years, didn't make a difference that I could tell. They decided to move to the godless Northwest. And I told my wife, I'm like, are you kidding me? They no longer have us in their lives to speak Jesus to them. They'll never believe. What a foolish thing to say and believe. Well, you get up there and all of a sudden, like a few months into this, he's like posting quotes about C.S. Lewis. I'm like, huh, something's happened here. To make a long story short, there's openness in his life to spiritual things. A few years ago, I, had to fly, I got a chance to fly up to where he lives and baptize him. You know one thing he said? He goes, when we had that conversation, I was like 99% sure you were wrong. But there was 1% that thought maybe you're right that bugged me. <laughs> I used to have them come speak to my students because I wanted to teach my students how to have conversations with people who are skeptics. And he's very kind and gracious. So he talked to my students. He'd ask questions like these are high school students. And they were in my home. And I don't remember how the conversation got there. This was not the topic. But at one point, 
somebody raised the issue of like the legalization of marijuana. I have no memory of how we got there and asked him what his thought was. And he goes, you know what? He goes, bottom line is the government should stay out of my house. I can do what I want in my house if I want to. So I thought of that verse in Romans where Jesus is like, I stand at the door and knock. I'm like, if he doesn't want the government, maybe God is the ultimate government he doesn't want in his house. So in front of my students, I said, hey, you started this conversation by saying you would believe in God if there was evidence and you want to. I said, maybe something else is going on. Maybe like you don't want the government coming into your house. Maybe you don't want God, the ultimate government, coming into your house telling you how to live. He goes, rephrase that. I don't know what you mean. I tried it again. I'm like, maybe I just can't communicate. I was like, why couldn't I explain this? Doesn't seem like that hard of a point. Let it go. Years later, I asked him what partly led to his conversion. He said, you know what? He goes, that bugged me. <laughs> he goes, part of it was I didn't want God coming in to my life. It was patience. It was relationship. It was giving him space to work things out and yet loving him in his case over probably a decade, he ended up coming to faith. Friends, I'm telling you, I think most people are willing and eager to have genuine spiritual conversations if we just treat them the way they want to be treated. This past week, I actually assigned to my students at Biola to go out and have at least three spiritual conversations. In one class, they used to have, you had to convert somebody. I'm like, that is the worst assignment ever. Well, you have no control over your grade, like converting somebody. This is terrible, but we can all go have conversations with people. And when they come back, I debrief with my students and their biggest takeaway is they'll say, gosh, this person wanted to talk. They wanted to share. I expected big walls, but if I just showed kindness and start a conversation, most people were willing to engage. It's not as hard as we think it is. If we just treat people the way we want to be treated, trust God and ask good questions. Now, we've got about 10, 12 minutes, and I didn't preface this ahead of time kind of to warn you for this, but I wanted to make sure there was time for questions. So if there's questions from this, maybe from a situation that you're in, if there's some kind of apologetic question, something I talked about or didn't that would be helpful to you, Thomas, you have a mic, right? Thomas will run around. I've seen his athleticism. He will move quickly and find you. Now, one thing I would say, just because I have a flight tonight and only have a small window, state the question as quickly as you can. I'd like to get to as many questions as we can, but I see on your left. Go. Put your hand up high and we'll get you Ooh, on your left. There we go. Other Kyle. Left. <laughs> yeah. If you had 10 minutes, three times a week to sit down with a skeptic and read any section of scripture, which parts of scripture would you read and why? So here's what I would say. When you look at Jesus, he didn't have one approach that he took with everybody. The way he approached the woman at the well was different than the rich young ruler. That was different from the woman who was bleeding. That was different from fill in the blank. So I don't have a blanket book that I would apply to every skeptic in every situation for 10 minutes a week. What I would do is I would try to find out what, are, what is that person's questions and then adapt it to them as a whole. But with that said, I think, so one of the most popular blogs I ever wrote is just simply titled, what's the best book to give a non-Christian? And my number one answer is the Gospel of John. Rather than giving more than a carpenter, evidence demands verdict, case for Christ, fill in the blank. As wonderful as those books are, there's something about encountering the person of Jesus that carries this authority and power in itself. So I would probably go to one of the gospels. I love John. Mark is shorter, so you get a lot more in quickly. I'd probably do Mark or I'd do John if you forced me to pick. And I just want to ask him, who do you think Jesus was? Why do you think these stories have turned the world upside down more than anybody who's ever lived? Where do you agree with Jesus? Where do you disagree with Jesus? That's a basic approach that I would take. I'm, I'm so fast, you're gonna think if you ask a question on this side that I'm over there too. 
because Jeremy has a microphone. <laughs> Let's hear another one. That's great. Good question. Yeah. Let's do one right up here and then afterwards back in the left. Um, oh, goodness. That's off. <laughs> so in the context of like random, you probably won't ever see this person again, um, gospel conversations, what is the most effective way? And obviously there's not one way um, to share, like if it's not just get straight to the gospel. Like just random conversations. Yeah, like random. So I have friends who are evangelists who just nonstop are having random spiritual conversations. I'm a little bit more calculated in terms of how I do it. So my approach is I just look for conversations with people and try to find natural segues if they're open to discuss spiritual things. So I kind of think of it like fishing, like I'll throw out little hints and thoughts and if somebody jumps, I'm like, oh, they're open, they wanna hear this. If not, maybe that's not the right time. So I don't just have one way, but I'm observant of things around me. So I was sitting next to a young man, this is, I don't know, 18 months ago, and he was reading a book by Camus, this existentialist writer from like the middle 20th century. So he sits down to read, it's a college age, maybe mid 20s. And I was like, hey, I'm sorry to butt in, but like you're reading Camus, I studied philosophy. Do you mind telling me why you read this? He goes, well, I grew up in the church and I don't really believe this stuff anymore. And somebody told me I should read Camus. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm definitely gonna try to jump into this. I said, well, tell me what you've learned about Camus. What do you appreciate about it? What's interesting to you? I said, do you mind if I ask you about the tradition you left? He goes, no. I said, tell me why you left. He gives me his answer. I said, it sounds to me like you're leaving for emotional, relational reasons, not because you found evidence that Christianity is false. Is that true? He goes, yes. I said, here's my concern. If you leave the faith, that's up to you. But don't you owe it to yourself to at least really consider who Jesus is and the evidence for Jesus before you buy a different worldview? He said, yes. Gave him a copy of More Than Carpenter. So I don't even know that that changed anything for him. Those are just the kind of encounters I'm trying to have. I'm trying to listen Where's somebody at? Where's an openness? Where's the connection for the gospel? And sometimes I try and the person's not interested. I'm not going to force something that's not there. But I'm not someone who just walks up to people on the street and is like, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Like some people are natural evangelists better than I am, but I am always attentive and looking for people that want to talk to have spiritual conversations. And what I have to do is I sometimes like have my schedule. I'm doing this and this and this. And I want to view those as like, well, I'm going to stop doing what I was doing because this is more important and make sure I see those around me. And sometimes I even pray, I'm like, God, help me see the hurts of those around me and give me the ability to engage people. Sometimes I, I pray that prayer. Yes, or whoever. You've given a lot of examples tonight of where you get to the real issue. And that's been very encouraging to me. Um, I just wanted to ask, how many times do you think you have done something like that? Or you've been talking with somebody and you know you kind of get to the issue and they just blow you off. Like they don't want to talk about it and they run off or like you can't pursue it any further. That's, that's a great question. I don't know that I've had a lot of conversations where I get to the real issue and somebody like blows me off, runs off angrily. And I think that's because I, I, I try to be sensitive to people and do it in a way that's not like probing, prove them wrong. But I could tell you a lot of stories where I've gotten to the heart of the issue with people and they're not interested anymore. And they're like, okay. I mean, I, I, I'll never forget a young man, he tells me, he goes, after we talked for a while, he goes, I think I believe that Jesus is God, but I got to think about this. After later conversations, basically, he basically told me, he goes, look, <laughs> I'm sleeping with a lot of girls. Why would I give that up for some belief? I'm like, okay, you understand the heart of the issue. You've made a choice. I can't force anything. Jesus let the rich young ruler walk away. So just because we get to the heart of the issue doesn't mean that that person's going to be open and receptive to it. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of times where I often wonder in conversations, did I miss the heart of this? <laughs> like, did I blow it? Did I, like, I'm sure that happens in ways I don't even know 
that I've missed it. But I found, I think people appreciate if you at least try to bring the service, okay, we know what the issue is. We know the heart of what's going on here. Let's talk about that. But I hope I haven't told stories as if like in every conversation, I just nail it because that is definitely not the case more often than not. And in fact, we shouldn't expect that. I mean, Paul speaks in Athens and what happens? A handful of people come and see him. One reason Jesus spoke in parables, I think, was to root out people who were just there for the spectacle or the food and as opposed to the people who really wanted to know spiritual truth. It was a great question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my question was, what would you, or how would you approach, or what are some of the questions you would ask to a friend who would say they are too busy or don't understand why they would need Christianity? So keep a couple things in mind. If somebody says they're too busy and they don't understand why they need Christianity, there might not be an openness at this point in the person's life. You can't light wet wood, so to speak. So what I'm thinking in a relationship like that is a couple things. Number one, I'm going to pray for this person. Number two, I'm going to look for opportunities when they're not busy. So it might be when you're driving somewhere. It might be some time when you're at a restaurant. It might be out of the normal routine when you're together. People are sometimes more receptive to spiritual conversations in different settings. I mean, it's amazing. Like when you travel, people will like pour their hearts out because it's kind of like the priest thing that they think they'll never see you again, so they just share. So the setting has something to do with when people share or not. So I'm always thinking through what would be the best setting. The other thing I'm thinking is I want to make sure I love this person so when they are ready, they would come to me. But you can't force something if it's not there. Or I might just say, okay, like, I might just say, tell me about that. Like, what are the priorities in your life? Like, do you think about eternal questions? I've had a number of people tell me, even young people, like with COVID, it's made them think about their mortality more than they had before. I'd say, hey, I understand, like, we're busy. Has this whole COVID thing made you think any differently about life? And just ask a few questions. And if they're like, no, I'm not, and blow you off, then they're not spiritually open. But I find you just ask thoughtful, probing questions a little further and get people talking about themselves, they'll open up. I was speaking to some Mormon missionaries, and I knocked on this door when we were at BYU, and this guy's like, oh, I just have a few minutes, and we got to go. And I'm thinking, okay, what do I got to do to get this guy to stop? I said, hey, you know what? Would you tell me about your mission? Well, we talked for an hour and a half. And then at the end, we got to the gospel and some of our differences because he was excited and wanted to share about it. So those are just some ways I try to approach it. But I don't want to be that guy, especially my friends and family. It's like, here comes Sean. He's going to hammer me with Jesus. I don't want to be that guy. I try to take a longer-term view with things. And that's not always easy to navigate. We have maybe, maybe one or two more. Sean, let me ask you one on behalf of some of the folks that are here. We, I mentioned this at lunch today, but some of these young, like 20-somethings, 30-somethings, are just starting to work. How would you encourage them to have these kinds of conversations with a supervisor or someone that they're, they're, they're or a coworker where there could be some fallout versus just a casual conversation with a friend? I, so it's really hard when you're dealing with power dynamics. So I would just be careful and I would be wise. If I had a supervisor, I would want the supervisor to think you're on time and you care and you're respectful and you are living example for this person. And then just look for opportunities to maybe share. Don't force something. Don't be quick on this because power dynamics, especially with how sensitive people are today, you just got to use a lot of wisdom in that approach. To me, especially where our culture is heading, one of the models that I keep looking to is Daniel. Read the book of Daniel. Because we are kind of in a stage where it's almost like Christians are in Babylon. <laughs> We're now in a culture that in so many ways is opposed to basic Christian beliefs about sexuality, even about race when you talk about critical race theory and a bunch of other issues. What did Daniel do? 
Like Daniel used wisdom. Like you read Daniel chapter one and they, they're told Daniel, like he was selected to be amongst the kings and trained for three years in Babylonian thinking. And what did Daniel do? He was the best of the best. I think he worked hard. I think he was respectful. But at some point he was told to eat food that wasn't kosher. So he could take the training from Babylon he disagreed with. But when it came to violating his commitment before the Lord, that's where Daniel says time out. But what did Daniel do? He comes up with this creative compromise that's like, how do I get the king to get what he wants? And how do I not compromise my convictions? And it was a brilliant compromise of like, give us 10 days to eat what we want and then test us, and it worked. So I think we're in uncharted waters. I know many of you probably work at Coke or other organizations, and there's like sensitivity training, all this stuff. I don't have simple answers. <laughs> For I hear new scenarios, I'm like, I don't have the answer to that one. I don't know. But I think it takes more wisdom, and we have to make sure we die on the right hill but ultimately don't compromise our convictions. I heard John Stone Street, a friend and co-author of mine, also say, we need a new theology of being fired. I thought, wow, that is something I had not thought about, that we actually are in a point in America where it might cost us something. Jack Phillips, the one who made the bakery in a uh, in Colorado and asked to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. He's like, I will serve gay people. I love gay people. But to use my artistic talent to make a cake, he goes, this is violating my religious conscience before the Lord. Now, you might view baking a cake in that situation differently, but if that's his conviction before the Lord, shouldn't he live it out? He has a book coming out called The Cost of Faith. So the reality is, at some point, it could cost all of us something for our faith. But before it gets to that point, let's build relationships. Let's use wisdom like Daniel did and try to navigate these waters as thoughtfully and carefully as we can. I think we've got hopefully time to get one more. And I think Jeremy's got one more and then we'll wrap it up there. Um, yeah. So what would you say to someone like me who's grown up in the church, who's read apologetics books um, and uh, is in a very liberal art form, like I'm in television and acting and I've shared with many people, but my confidence derails my, my witness. And what would you say to someone like me who just like the confidence fact, how to increase that confidence? Wait, when you... When you say confidence, you mean the lack of confidence derails boldness. Right. Where is, where is that la lack of confidence in what? I guess lack of confidence in how much I know, whereas okay. I really should know. I really, at this point in my life, know a lot more. I mean, I grew up with a preaching dad and everything, so I should know a lot. It's just that doubt's still there, I guess. Okay, so first off, give yourself some grace. You just said, I should no more. Christianity is about grace. You can't change anything from the past. Trust me. I know what it's like for people to say, hey, your dad was Josh McDowell. You should know A, B, and C. I'm not going to waste my time playing that game. The past is done. So the first thing is just to give yourself some grace. Wherever you're at, God has you. How do you move going forward? I think all I can say is if I was in your shoes, I would do two things. One is I would try to find out where your deepest questions really are. What are they? Is it about scriptures? Is it about God's goodness? Is it about LGBTQ issues? I mean, I don't know what it is. You don't have to tell me. But I have questions in life, and I can't research everything I want to know, but I've taken a few issues and just studied them in depth until I have the confidence that I want to have. And that has served me very, very well. So I would try as best you can, and sometimes you might need someone to kind of draw this out of you a little bit and figure out where that's at and then try to address it. Second, is I would find a Christian mentor, and I don't know who that is, somebody who's 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the road from you who's worked in this field and been able to do it well 
while maintaining their confidence in the gospel and spend time with that person. Ask them questions. Go to dinner at their house. Go to coffee. Be curious and find out how they navigate these questions. That's two things that jumped to mind for me. But thanks for asking that, and thanks for being a witness in that world. The last thing I would say is I don't know, obviously don't know you well, so this might not apply at all. But if you are at the point where you said your confidence is derailed, if you feel like this is rocking your faith, get out. Your faith in the Lord is so much more important, and God will provide than you being a light in some field. I can only imagine the challenges working in Hollywood on so many levels. I don't even know. But if you're at the point where this is rocking my faith, you don't have to be Superman. (laughs) Find another job because your faith before the Lord is much more important than any career would ever be. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I appreciate. I've got about literally 12 minutes. I have to catch a flight home tonight to see my family, number one. But if you did not pick up a copy of evidence and you want one, grab one quickly because I'm going to split at 6.30 out of here. So I'm going to sneak over there, 10 minutes if I can answer a quick question, sign a book, whatever, connect with you would be would be great. By the way, since you guys came this afternoon, um, it might be helpful. My website is seanmcdowell.org, and I am all over social media. I'm on TikTok, which might surprise some of you. I Instagram, Twitter, have a YouTube channel, and I do fun stuff now and then, but my whole, my entire philosophy is I want to bring value to people. So it's a book that's helpful. It's a thought that's helpful. It's a resource that's helpful to help train people to know what they believe and why. I don't want to waste your time. So that's the kind of engagement that I do on social media is to try to find resources and opportunities and just serve people. And I found that it's a lot of people appreciate it. So I'm going to sneak over there. Now I've got like 10 minutes and then I'm out of here. Thanks for coming this afternoon.